Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. Man, what an action-packed wildcard weekend. So much has happened before and since, and will happen this week as well. A lot of interesting coaching news, the Belichick thing. Wow, a lot going on. Um, And we're going to add to your enjoyment of the general mayhem around the National Football League uh, this week. I've got a couple of good guests for you. I am going to introduce you to the precocious rookie defensive coordinator for the Los Angeles Rams. Brandon Staley, who I think you're really going to like. He's got a lot of interests outside of football, but he's got a lot of interests in football, too. And he's got two puzzle pieces that are going to make things hard for Aaron Rodgers on Sunday, Aaron uh, Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey. And then we will have a go round around the NFL with Rich Eisen, host of the Rich Eisen show. You see that right here on Peacock. and uh, also, the NFL Network czar of the uh, of the broadcast world there. So, Brandon Staley, Rich Eisen. You know, I usually don't do this, but instead of talking about the news of the week, I'm going to give you one minute on every game coming up this weekend. And so let's start with Rams at Packers. What I think is really going to be a telling uh, story in this game is how healthy uh, Aaron Donald is after hurting his rib cage last weekend. He'll certainly play, uh, but can he play to the Aaron Donald level? It's so important when you play a quarterback like Aaron Rodgers. There's not a lot of recent history between these two teams. They've only played once, basically, in the last five years. So I think it's going to be very interesting. Aaron Rodgers, not a lot to go on. He has not faced Jalen Ramsey much. So that is going to be difficult for them. I like the Packers narrowly. Let's go to Saturday night, Ravens at Bills. This is one game that I really don't have a great idea about the winner. Now, if you watch the game, uh, the Baltimore-Tennessee game, one of the things that you saw is one of the most intense, almost angry performances by a defense that you're ever going to see in a professional football game. That is what you saw in the Baltimore Ravens. You know, at the end, obviously, Marcus Peters making the interception 
um, and, you know, bringing the entire team basically to the logo of the Tennessee Titans and everybody dancing on it, stomping on it. That enraged the Titans. It was just a really crazy game. And my question is, can the Baltimore Ravens, who don't really have any history, angry or otherwise, with the Buffalo Bills, can the Baltimore Ravens muster up that same kind of intensity on defense to make life hard on Saturday night in Orchard Park, New York, for Josh Allen? If they do, if I knew that they would have a great game defensively, I would pick the Ravens. I'm going to pick the Bills because I think the healthier that a guy like Cole Beasley gets, very valuable in that offense, I think the better this offense is going to be. Um, I'll take Buffalo, but again, I think it's going to be a narrow game. Uh, Josh Allen over Lamar Jackson, but I will not be at all surprised if the Ravens win. Early game on Sunday, Browns at the Chiefs. You know, I've been making this point in a lot of places. It has been 10 weeks, 10 weeks since the Kansas City Chiefs have blown anybody out. They blew out the lowly New York Jets on November 1st. And since then, every game that they won, I think they've won seven games since then, and every one has been by less than a touchdown. So you look at that and you say, what does that mean? I don't know exactly what it means, but I'd be a little worried if the last game your your first team offense played as a whole, you scored 17 points on the 4-12 and 12 Atlanta Falcons, I'd be a little bit worried. I also don't love resting your quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, in a game that you have nothing to play for in Week 17. I get it. I just don't love it. Ask Aaron Rodgers about that the week they, the year they came out flat to the New York Giants uh, nine years ago. Ask uh, Peyton Manning and Tony Dungy about when it happened in Indianapolis. I just don't think it's a great idea, except when necessary, to give your key offensive guys, unless they're hurt, uh, 20 days off, and that's what the Chiefs will have. I think this game is going to be a close game. Uh, Cleveland very likely getting its best uh, defensive back, Denzel Ward back. They're going to need him. Uh, back from the COVID list. They're going to really need him uh, against an explosive, if napping, Kansas City offense right now. And then the final game of the weekend, Tampa Bay against uh, New Orleans in New Orleans. Look, two games they played this year. First game of the season, uh, Tampa Bay lost by 11. Later in the season, Tampa Bay at home lost by 35. I don't just dismiss those because most people would say, hey, <coughs> hard to beat a team three times in one year. And I get that. I get that. But I do think that Tom Brady is playing his best football four consecutive 350-plus yard games uh, for uh, Tampa Bay. He ended the season hot. He ended the season healthy. And if you have watched Tampa, the one thing that really interests me is how much and in what key times they're using Antonio Brown. And so I think he's become a very important part of that passing game. You kind of knew he would if he could stay eligible. So, I, look, 
I don't mean to be boring. And I think every one of these games is going to be close. Uh, the Rams, uh, Packers, because of the Rams defense. Ravens, Bills, because there's two really good quarterbacks and offensive attacks that can do damage. The Browns, the Cinderella story of the year, obviously. Uh, but I don't think they have enough to beat the Chiefs. And then the Bucks, Saints. I mean, look, Drew Brees knows that he will walk onto the field at the Superdome with a very good idea that it's the last time he will ever walk on the field at the Superdome. This game's very, very big for Drew Brees. So let's get to our conversations now. We're going to start with Brandon Staley, the defensive coordinator of the Los Angeles Rams. I'm trying to introduce him to America because I don't think people really know very much about Brandon Staley. Here he is. Happy to be joined this week on the podcast by Brandon Staley, the first-year Rams defensive coordinator. Um, and Brandon has done such a good job with the Rams that he's even gotten a couple of head coaching interviews, which is a really interesting topic, probably for another day. But, man, I, I think head coaching interviews ought to be put off till after the season. I can't imagine how many fumes you're working off of right now if you have to come back from a road game and prepare for Aaron Rodgers and do a couple of head coaching interviews. I mean, you know, I, I don't expect you to, to bite the hand that feeds you, but man, I, I, I can't imagine what you must feel like as we record this on a Tuesday afternoon. I think there are a lot of coaches and their families that would support that idea, Peter. <laughs> I think, I think that, uh, I could speak for many that they would be, I think, unanimously in favor of that. Yeah, yeah. I just think a lot of times, uh, you know, it penalizes the teams that go far. You know, if you're a coach, if you're Robert Sala last year in San Francisco, and you can basically, you can't really delve into it too deep with any team, and nobody wants to wait till February 10th to hire a coach. That's the issue. So, in my opinion, everybody ought to wait till February 10th. But, I, I, you know, let's let me start by just sort of asking you a little bit. You know, I I texted you at one point during the season and said, I know how much you love football. And it's got to be very, very cool for you in one season to, you know, now you have you've had some pretty good games with your defense. You know, you've beaten uh, Tom Brady, Tom Brady's team. Uh, you've beaten Bill Belichick's team and done very well on defense. And now you've got to prepare for, for Aaron Rodgers' team. And so I just wonder, take all the X's and O's and everything like that, and for somebody who has an appreciation of the game, what is it like for you in a week like this? Yeah, I think, I think, Peter, you hit it. I think someone that just loves the game and the history of the game so much, I think, you know, men like Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and Aaron Rodgers, you know, in many ways they've helped me, you know, get to the point where I am today because, you know, you learn so much studying those people, you know, and I love to read. And, you know, you're reading about these legendary coaches, a Bill Parcells, a Bill Belichick, a Tony Dungy, a Pete Carroll, um, you know, so on and so forth. And, and then you study these great competitors, you know, Tom Brady and I are, you know, similar in age. And, you know, I was a quarterback and just following his story 
uh, at Michigan and, you know, being a quarterback that, you know, had to go through so much myself, you know, um, and just, you know, so much admiration for what he did at Michigan and then how, you know, he became the quarterback in New England and, and, and where he took that team over the course of 20 years and knowing how difficult it is, you know, and just being in the NFL and knowing how challenging it is. Uh, but, you know, to compete at the highest level that you have to compete against guys like Tom Brady, like Russell Wilson, like Aaron Rodgers. If, if you want to ascend to the top of this league, those are the guys that you have to play against and that you have to face and, and, and ultimately beat. So um, in many ways, they've helped shape my career and shape my journey because, you know, if, in order for you to take it as far as you hope to, um, that you got to face men like that, like, you know, Coach Belichick, like Tom, like Aaron, um, all these great coaches and players in this league. Before we dive into your game this week, I want to do ask you a couple of questions about your history, because right now people in America don't really know who you are. You know, you're sort of new on the scene and, you know, rightfully so. This is your first year as a defensive coordinator, but you were uh, a college quarterback. And I believe I'm right in saying you played at Dayton from 2002 to 2004. And this won't be your first playoff game in Wisconsin. You actually uh, coached John Carroll in one. Uh, a few years ago at Wisconsin Oshkosh in the college playoffs. That's a great story. But, the you know, when I was coaching at John Carroll, we faced them uh, on December 10th, my birthday in the national semifinal. It's, uh, you know, an experience I won't forget for a lot of reasons. Um, unbelievable team, uh, you know, incredible environment, you know, sort of in, in the playoffs. But it, it Dayton, you know, as a quarterback, you know, that that was an experience uh, that, that's really shaped me. You know, I don't I, I think people – um, you know, when they, they think defensive coordinator, they don't, they don't think, man, th this guy was a former quarterback, you know, and, um, I think, you know, my journey as a defensive coach can be explained through the eyes of me as a quarterback, you know, because that's how I've approached the game, um, since I got into coaching and as a little kid, you know, uh, I started drinking coffee in the first grade, reading the newspaper, trying to be like my dad. I was trying to see the game like a point guard, like a quarterback, like a head coach. You know, and that's just the way I was raised with my mom and dad. I was a you know teacher's son, coach's son. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, my journey as a coach can, you know, you can trace it back to, you know, me playing quarterback, you know, at a place like UD. You believe that that had a big factor in why you are where you are today? I do. You know, I, I feel like when I got into coaching, I had these really unique experiences that people don't know about. Sometimes when you're in lower levels when you come from, when you take the low, the road less traveled, you can kind of acquire more experiences along the way that really help you, that really shape you and that, you know, kind of, you know, give you that lift to where you need to go. And um, as a young coach, you know, I went to New Orleans in, in, in 2009. Uh, two guys that are really important to me are Pete Carmichael and Joe Lombardi. I played for Joe in college my fifth year. Um, and, you know, I was in the quarterback room for six years for six days in 2009, watching Drew Brees, you know, the year that they won the Super Bowl. And that experience is something that will always stay with me because I just, I couldn't take my eyes off the guy. Um, I was watching, I was observing, I was asking questions. You know, it was him and Mark Brunel, Joey Harrington, you know, Pete, Joe, and, and then Sean Payton. And, you know, I just, I learned so much in six days that always stayed with me because I said, 
in order for you to do this at a high level, this is the type of quarterback that you're going to have to face, you know, and um, it's, it's something that's stuck with me and it certainly shaped me, you know, in, in this role and in this experience. You know, the, the thing about your career that I think has been interesting is that, so you start as a quarterback and then you come in, you know, and, and you come up to be a defensive coach. In my opinion, you know, one of the things that really helped you is sort of aligning with Vic Fangio uh, because Vic Fangio does not coach defense the same way as most people in football do. You know, he's a unique guy. Belichick always says he's one of the toughest guys we ever have to prepare for. Talk to me a little bit about the Vic Fangio tutelage and what that meant to your career. Vic means so much to me and kind of how we, you know, got to meet one another, I think is just unique because, you know, I'm coming from John Carroll. Uh, we had this incredible run that not a lot of people understand. Some people do in the NFL because of the footprint John Carroll has in the NFL. But, you know, our defense in 2016 was as good a defense. I would have taken our John Carroll defense in 2016 versus any defense in in, in the world at any level. And it, we just kind of had this magical run. And at the end of it, um, you know, there was an opportunity for an outside linebacker coach job and, and, and Vic wanted a younger guy that he could kind of groom. And that's the position that he coaches, you know, and I joke with Vic, he's like the Bill Walsh of outside linebackers. He coached like five Hall of Fame guys. Uh, not a lot of people associate that with Vic, but he's coached like five or six Hall of Fame outside pass rushers. And he was looking for a guy that he could groom. And I don't think what he knew is that I had been studying him since 2010, you know, just every single year when he was at Stanford, you know, because this guy comes out of nowhere at Stanford and all of a sudden, man, they become one of the top defenses. Like, well, how did that happen at Stanford? You know? And, um, and then, so I just start. I kept watching, I watched all that Stanford stuff. Then he goes to the Niners and there's just like this explosion. And I was the goodwill hunting, you know, getting the Harvard education for a dollar fifty and late charges at the public library. I was just I was studying, I was watching. And when I, you know, got you know, my opportunity, I was a junior college defensive coordinator, then taken to John Carroll. There was so much of his scheme that that we kind of implemented in, in our teaching tapes and um and our install progression. And when I went to interview with Vic, I had so much Niner stuff like on my John Carroll tapes. And when you know you're interviewing and you're teaching you know, you're, you're kind of paying him a compliment, you know? And yeah. I think if you know, Vic, he know, he really respects people that do the work. He respects people that do the work. And, um, and I had gone back a long ways, you know, and I had an inventory, you know, and I think he appreciated that. And, and Vic's such a, he has so much respect for the game. And then when I was able to join up with him and be with him every day and have, you know, really 30 years worth of knowledge that I could tap into. And he was so gracious in sharing that with me. And I was able to really, solidify all this stuff that I had been watching. And now I had, you know, direct knowledge of how this all came to be. And it really helped solidify my thinking. And, um, you know, as you guys know, I mean, he's one of the best defensive coaches, you know, in the history of the game. Um, he's, he's going to be an outstanding head coach. And, and, and there was, there's no possible way I would be here um, without him. And um, just so appreciative for him. If we can just, kind of, um, you know, look at the Fangio defense and the influence on you, and then we'll bring it to the Rams. My, my thought about Fangio is that he really 
doesn't have a lot of defensive tendencies. Okay. So if you go to prepare for a Vic Fangio defense and now for a Brandon Staley defense, you're going to say, Hey guys, middle of the first quarter, we might be throwing all this out because we don't know precisely what we're going to see. I know that's very overly simplistic, but give me your view on that. I think it's just so accurate. Uh, I think that, you know, one of Vic's hallmarks, you know, and I think similar to, to, to Bill Belichick and, and, and a lot of the great coaches in this league, but those two specifically is um, they are who they need to be in that specific week. And they, te- they treat that week like it has a life of its own. Uh, and they have an inventory of defense that they can go to um, to match up with a particular opponent, to make an adjustment within the game that they need to get to um, if they need to. And that's rare in this league to be able to have that type of flexibility, that agility is a word that I love, that that agility to be able to move where you need to move, you know, and be able to move there quickly. And, and your players have full command over it because there's a lot of people that know a lot of football, but can they explain it? Can they teach it? Can their players apply it? And I think that's always been a strength of Vicks. Where, where he's been, where he started as a defensive coordinator with the Carolina Panthers in 1995 is much different than where he is right now. And I think that he's been able to anticipate, stay ahead of the trends. And um, he's very difficult to prepare for because when people think that they have maybe reached a rhythm, you know, going against them, he's able to move, you know, uh, a different direction to stay several uh, chapters ahead. And as you know, with Bill Belichick, you know, that was the hallmark of him as a defensive coordinator for the Giants with Coach Parcells. And it's been a hallmark of him as a head coach throughout you know, his entire time in New England, 20 years worth of shape-shifting. And um, you know, those are two guys I certainly admire. I think the best compliment that you can give a coach, and people say it about Belichick a lot, is it's hard to prepare for him because every game plan is a snowflake. Everyone looks different. And that is what is the strength of any really good coach. You prepare for any game like it's a unique game. And, and look, I covered the Giants in the 80s, and Parcells used to say all the time that we've got four running plays. And if people start stopping these four running plays, we'll put some more in the game plan. Until they do, why would we change? But there's very few elements of teams, like you know the New York Giants running game of the late 80s, that you say – we don't care what anybody else does. Our stuff is going to work. Whereas I always think of today's football and I look at you for instance, and I think mentally everybody thinks, well, you know, Jalen Ramsey is going to go and cover the best guy. Okay. Kind of like you've seen some with DK Metcalf, but that isn't really true. Is it? you're going to put Jalen Ramsey in the slot sometimes, probably not often, but you're going to put him in the slot and you're going to play him all around. You, you know, you're going to play him tight in bump. You're going to, you're going to play him in off coverage and things like that. Um, so I, you know, that's, that's how I feel when I look at your defense on TV, right or wrong. Yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, you're very accurate in that statement. You know, we want, we want to showcase our players 
and we want them to express themselves fully. You know, it's a word that I'm, I'm really, you know, fond of because, you know, Jalen's got a lot more ability than just covering a number one receiver. He can do a lot more to impact the game than just do that. You know, and I think that um, just like uh, an offense moves around a premier wideout, like a Devontae Adams, like a DeAndre Hopkins, like a Julio Jones, you know, we want to do the same thing with a guy like Jalen Ramsey so he can impact the game. And because of the depth of his skill set, um, you know, both physically and mentally, we feel like he can impact the game if we move him around more. And the other thing is that's going to have a multiplying effect on his teammates. It's going to help his teammates. It'll help an Aaron Donald when they have to go locate Jalen Ramsey. It's going to help Jalen Ramsey when they have to go find Aaron Donald. What we want to do is we want to create a team defense. We don't just want them to be worried about one or two guys. We want them to have to worry about all 11 guys that are in the game. And I think that we've been able to do that. And certainly when you have players like Jalen and Aaron, it really helps, you know, to accomplish that. But what I'm most proud of is that they're having their best years, you know, and what it has done is it's led to, you know, where we're ranked, you know, defensively and where our team is, you know, still being alive in the playoffs and having a chance to compete. Uh, Brandon, let me ask you about you walking into a team that had some veterans with great resumes like Aaron Donald, uh, like Jalen Ramsey. Obviously, you've never been a coordinator before. And guys, I would think, might look at you and say, who's this kid? And why should we listen to him? Why should we try? We just had the the grandmaster grandfather, you know, Wade Phillips and, and, and all that. So when you first came in, what was the acceptance like from your players? Well, I think that, you know, it's incumbent upon me to earn their respect and earn their trust. And I think that at the hallmark of anything new um, is a relationship and competition. And I think that they need to know you before you start to coach them, you know? And I think what I try to do with those guys is for them to get to meet me, to know me, my story, know about my family, my wife and my three boys, kind of know about my path. And then me do a lot of listening. You know, it, it, you know, like I told you, I'm a son, you know, a teacher's son and a coach's son. And, you know, one of my mom's greatest strengths was she was an amazing listener. And what I try to do is listen and listen to Aaron Donald and listen to Jalen Ramsey um, and see where they've been and where they're hoping to go. And then once all that takes place, then you can create that vision that you have for them, you know, and where you can help take their game, you know, and, and then hopefully if you're good enough, when you give, you outline that vision with specifics, the great players, they know what the truth is. They know the people that, that are real, that can help them. And, um, but, you know, that process is so important with the relationship piece, because no matter what your vision is, no matter how you know grand you think that your way of doing things are, uh, it'll never express itself if, if there isn't a relationship there. And uh, I think that you can trace back, you know, those two guys specifically, our entire defense, our team um, is in that investment of relationships. When you when you talk about listening to them, can you think of a conversation with either Aaron Donald or Jalen Ramsey in which they told you something that you then used in your either, uh, uh, you know, design of your scheme, your game planning, 
anything that led you to maybe do something that you that you did that you may not have done without having a conversation like that? Yeah, there's there's a couple good ones. Um, you know, a uh, couple funny ones. Um, you know, uh, you know, back in the springtime, I made like a 90 play cut up of Jalen from Florida State, Jacksonville to last year in L.A. And a lot of good, some not so good in the middle. And then, hey, here's our vision for you. And, you know, we talked through a lot of things philosophically about how he plays technique and how we want to play. And, you know, just learning about what he's comfortable with and what he's not comfortable with and then where we think we can go. And so we were talking about, you know, him playing inside at, at star, you know, what we call a star, you know, in the slot. And, you know, he goes, well, coach, I've been dying to play that my whole career. You wow. know, like I've been dying to play in there. Like I've been, you know, like I don't see myself as a corner. I see myself as a football player. And, you know, when he said that, it's like, well, I didn't know how this was going to go. You know, like I, I was hopeful. I was hopeful, you know, but you don't know how anyone's going to receive it. Um, and so from there, it's like, OK, now the stars are, are going. And then, you know, and then I'll tell you, we Jalen really helped me this year, helped our defense. We talk a lot about, you know, Rams defense, you know, killing blocks, tackling and takeaways. We, we talk about those a lot. And, you know, it was after the San Francisco game and it was a tough loss. Our first, you know, our the first game against San Francisco where we lost and um, it was a close game. You know, we didn't have our best stuff that 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 night. And, you know, Jalen, you know, the next week he said, Coach, you know, you talk a lot about tackling as well as anybody. And we all love it. But he's like, you know, you got to talk about hitting you know, like out hitting teams too, you know, and, and it's something that we've carried with us, you know, the rest of the season, you know, it's, it's, it's tackling and hitting and, and, and that physicality, that point of it. And so, you know, I think that you'd be surprised how much, how intuitive these guys are and how, you know, just how much you can learn if you listen, you know, and then Aaron, there's a great story with Aaron. We were playing Tampa and uh, we're, you know, it's, it's, it's in the, first half and we got off to a good start and we had a couple things up for Tom and you know I kind of went back to a call you know probably too soon in the second quarter and it, it, it involved like Aaron not kind of directly rushing the guy and they get the first down we fortunately got a stop but we go to the sideline and Aaron kind of came over and he goes coach no more of that hey just let us go I promise you, we're not going to let you down. And it was one of those things where as a coach, you know, they're just the, the conviction that he had. But also what I loved is that he felt that, you know, that we had a good enough relationship that he could come talk to me, you know. And yeah. um, and then, you know, we go and, and we ended up, you know, rushing him really well and, and being able to close the game out in the second half, you know. But, um, you know, I think that those guys have meant so much to me because, as you know, this is a league that's driven by players like them. You know, they're two of the greatest in the game, in the history of the game. And, you know, uh, I think, you know, us being able to connect the way we have has just been really special for me. What do you think is the absolute key to playing a game against Aaron Rodgers as a defensive coordinator? I think that every play has a life of its own. You know, with him, there's danger every play. Um, he's just capable of so much. Uh, he can control the game in a lot of different ways. And I think that's what makes him so special is, is him controlling the game. Uh, and, and what you have to be able to do against a guy like that is play him as a team. You know, you have to buy into being an 11 man operation, that specific play. And then however many guys you have up, I, I like to talk about 22 guys, like a two deep, you know, it's going to be a four quarter overtime game against players like that. 
Like you have to be able to play your best at the end because that's when he plays his best, you know, in crunch time and those winning moments. And so I think that, you know, you have to go into the game plan saying, hey, it's going to take everybody to play against this guy, just like a Michael Jordan, a Kobe Bryant. You know, it's a team operation. If it were a one on one contest, you know, you'd probably lose a lot, you know. And uh, what you need to do is you need to play as a team. Um, and and that's, you know, your best chance of being successful uh, versus him because, you know, he is one of the greatest to ever do it. Uh, I'm going to end with this. You're a big fan of the Premier League, I hear. And I'm always curious when somebody loves some other sport, whatever it is. I mean, Vic Fangio has talked about learning stuff from watching baseball. And I wonder, is there anything, is it simply a matter of entertainment and leisure and being a fan of another game? <laughs> or can you watch a Premier League game and actually learn something that helps you as a football coach? Yeah, Peter, you know, I, I love the Premier League. I follow, like, it's really been the last, like, year and a half. You know, I got recommended uh, to watch, like, All or Nothing Man City uh, and, you know, I've read a lot about Pep Guardiola, you know, I love to read, yeah. I've read a lot about him, you know, being in Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, and then, you know, um, now in Man City and just his leadership style, um, I've always been impressed with, you know, and just, I, you know, and learning about him, I was all in on the show and my wife, Amy and I were looking for a show in the spring. And then I just, I was, I was captured by what is going on over there, like how, how long the season is, what's at stake every week, just the interest, the level of passion. And I felt like it, this is the closest thing to the NFL that there is, you know, where the stakes are so high. And, um, you know, you're, you know, you're dealing with people from, you're coaching people from literally all over the world. It's such a global game. And um, the more I learned about it, the more I just was in love with it, you know, and, and fell in love with it. And I felt like, from a communication standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, how progressive those organizations are with data analytics, you know, sports science, like just, you know, all the different things that uh, go into being successful in that league. Um, I was just, I was, you know, I was captivated by it. And, you know, between the Premier League and, and tennis, I'm a huge tennis guy, you know, Rafa Nadal, my favorite player of all time. Um, you know, I, I, I take away so much um, from the leadership side, competitor side uh, by watching you know, those, those types of things, you know, and that's why as much as you're a fan, um, when you're a competitor, you're always learning. And I feel like I can learn a lot watching a premier league game or read about it. You know, I just got done reading Sir Alex Ferguson's book, uh, leading, you know, a little bit ago and, you know, just reading about his story with Manchester United and his whole journey. Um, and then a guy like Nadal, um, you know, he's a guy that, uh, you know, just, I've been, you know, since, you know, 17 year old kid went in the French to now, I feel like I've been there every step of the way with him, you know, so, uh, you know, just taken away from a lot of those things and you try and incorporate it into your game and fit it to your style. And, you know, um, you know, definitely a big fan of both of those things. You know, it's tough for you because I'm sure you'd love to see the U.S. Open one day. But how will you ever see the U.S. Open? It's my mother, a Labor was, Day weekend and all listen, that. that. That was my, my my godmother lives in Manhattan. You know, she lives East 71st in Madison. And, uh, you know, my mom, we, you know, we grew up, my family, big tennis family. And, and we always wanted to go to Flushing Meadows, always. But we're always doing football, whether we were playing it. Now you're coaching it. And, you know, um, that's going to have to wait, you know, um, <laughs> 
till till we're finished with this thing. But that is definitely so Wimbledon is more of a an achievable goal, you know, yeah. because of where it, you know, but uh, the U.S. Open will have to wait till, uh, you know, hopefully we're much older. Hey, Brandon Staley, good luck in Wisconsin this weekend. And uh, boy, it's that that really is going to be an interesting game. I'm dying to see what you have in store for Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. Yeah, great team. You know, so much respect for them. And it's really what the playoffs are about is when you can, you know, have these type of matchups and the type of players that are going to be in the game. That's what makes the game so special is the players that are, who are playing in it. And, um, you know, we're excited to compete. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. And now my conversation with Rich Eisen of the Rich Eisen Show and NFL Network. Back to the podcast. So happy to be joined by Rich Eisen, um, the host of the Rich Eisen Show. Uh, the NFL impresario for NFL Network. Thank you. And uh, how are you, Rich? I'm doing well, Peter. It's uh, I'm uh, I'm recovering uh, from Super Wild Card Weekend. Six games, you know, ten hours on the couch, two straight days. I I I I, I never thought I would see today. So I'll ask you this question, okay? Uh, I really loved it, although it made doing my column impossible because yeah, I ended up writing about a third of the column on the winner of the last game of the weekend, which made the wee hours of Monday morning difficult. But anyway, it was sort of worth it to be about the Browns. Anyway, I wonder if next year when people at the NFL are telling me if it doesn't conflict with the college football game, Watch out for a Monday night football game on Wild Card Weekend. What would you think of that? Um, I, I don't know about that one because um, that would create, in my mind, some sort of competitive disadvantage for whoever has to turn around and play uh, on Divisional Weekend. Um, you know, there already is, as you know, someone who plays on Sunday and winds up on Saturday enough of an issue. Uh, I guess they would have to, whoever plays on that Monday would have to play the following Sunday and just deal with it, I guess. But um, it, it, it seems to me 
just going ahead and playing all six games like that and having wall-to-wall football from one in the afternoon all the way up to midnight for two straight days is exactly what the NFL wants, which is the stage for half a day, two straight days, and putting out uh, an intense uh, amount of competitive action for the country to just feast on one after one. It had sort of a March Madness type feel to it, quite honestly. And um, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I would say don't mess with success, but you know they kind of did because there was nothing wrong with Wild Card Weekend except for the fact it wasn't big enough. Um, and I, I did have an issue with uh, expanding to seven teams because I honestly thought, and it may happen one day, that the same battle that played out to win the NFC East would play out for a seven seed, and that may that may soon happen anyway. Uh, but in the AFC, we saw double-digit win teams stay home. And in the NFC, we saw a couple of battles on, uh, on, uh, for, for the wild card that was much more, shall we say, uh, competitive start to finish than game 256 was for the division. All right. I'll give you my counterpoint to that in which okay. I, I disagree with you. And there's three reasons why. Number one, the NFL is always going to make decisions because of money. And a game that is going to be on in prime time on Monday night is going to net a lot more revenue for the NFL than a game played at 1 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time on Saturday. Yep. So they have two games Saturday, three Sunday, and one Monday night. Number two, you already are having six teams this year play on a short week going from Sunday in week 17 to Saturday of wildcard weekend. The fact that you would have the, you know, a, uh, a winner on Monday night playing uh, a short week game, it's already done. The Ravens played on Sunday this year, and they've got to play a short week game the following Saturday. Um, and so I think in general, mm-hmm. uh, I don't see an issue with this at all. And in fact, if I were a team that was banged up and I had till Monday night the extra day to recover before the wild card game, I'd actually be pretty happy. If you gave a coach a choice, I would bet that he would rather play Monday night knowing that his next game wouldn't be until Sunday rather than playing at 1 p.m. on Saturday. So I think, and I think players would rather do that too. It basically gives them two days additional, two yeah. days and a few hours of rest. But anyway, <clears throat> I do think that that's what the NFL is going to do next year anyway. Um, yeah, maybe so. Seems like it. You, you, you lay out quite a compelling case for it, that's for sure. Two, two sort of news events, okay? Yes. What was your impression of the Doug Peterson firing? And which way do you think the Eagles go? Well, my impression of the firing was that there is clearly, and you would know, uh, you'd know this better than than anybody, Peter. There's clearly more uh, to what's uh, going on in Philadelphia than what made uh, the public eye. There, there's an iceberg that the SS uh, Philadelphia Eagles 2020 hit, and we are just uh, viewing the tip of it. That's it. There has been a ton of stuff going on behind the scenes. Certainly, if Jeffrey Lurie says, as he did yesterday after we went off the air on my show on NBC Sports on Peacock, 
that uh, that the firing had nothing to do with the adjudicating of game 256. So if he's saying, oh, yeah, whatever the whole country's been talking about for the last 90 hours prior to wild card weekend, wiping it off the map for the moment. Now it's back in the in the news cycle. If he's saying that that had nothing to do with the firing, then, oh, boy, is there a lot going on right there. Um, that we have no idea. And I'd love to know what was going on all season long about the decision to continue to play Wentz and then finally move on from him and then go to Jalen Hurts and then insert uh, Nate Sudfeld into a fourth quarter, which, again, the owner says the firing had nothing to do. It had to do, I guess, with who the heck knows. Obviously, um, it, it does appear that one way for a coach to say I want out of here is to be told what coaches he can and can't have on a staff, certainly if it's within three actual calendar years of winning the Super Bowl. So, and that's one way. And in terms of where to go, um, this is a, a pretty late firing. Um, so a lot of people are already down the road. I mean, like uh, Robert Sala might be a great fit there for all I know, but he's on his way to having a second interview with the Jets right now. And he hasn't even had a first with Philadelphia, it sure looks like there might be some internal candidates that they like a lot, or at least people that have been through the organization before that they like a lot. That that may be their their way to go. What do you think? I, I just I just have this thought of how you know remember the old Jerry Glanville NFL films not for long thing when he looked at the ref on the field and he goes, "Hey, you know what the NFL stands for? Not for long." And that's what it's going to be for you if you keep making calls like that. And I, 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 am, I am blown away that the Philadelphia Eagles, since defeating Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, are 23-27-1 and since winning that Super Bowl. Imagine if, if I had said to you that night with a young, uh, promising top five in the league quarterback in Carson Wentz, with a young defense, with a bunch of playmakers on that defense. If I had told you that over the next three years, they were going to be four under 500, Carson Wentz wants to be traded, Doug Peterson gets fired. It's just, you know, the NFL is such a weird place. I can't think of, I can't think of many sports where, you know, in the span of 35 months, that would happen. In the span of 10 months, what happened to the Patriots would happen. It's all just, I, 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 don't, well, I don't even know what, what my, I don't have a question. I'm just, no, 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 I'm, I know. I'm and, 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 and just, you know, uh, dovetailing off of that, I mean, you mentioned the two franchises of Patriots and Eagles. Don't forget the Eagles were, were kind of high stepping at that Super Bowl and certainly after about being the place that has more fun. And when you rather be in the place that has more fun, than New England, where these guys do succeed, but they're not having fun doing it. And now here, this franchise is in the, uh, to use the the uh, beer commercial phrase, pit of misery, and um, and wondering about their direction. And, and in terms of, you know, what would you have told, what would I have told you if you told me that sort of unique set of facts? Philadelphia, let's not forget, is in this position because since the NFL changed the method uh, of, of drafting and signing players uh, after um, what the, in the year in which Cam was, was drafted after the new collective bargaining agreement where right. you slot players 
and you give them a fifth year that you have to pick up after the third and so on and so forth. Basically taking the, uh, the old way of doing things, which is handing the largest contract in the history of the franchise to someone who had never played a snap, that you'd have to then make the decision whether to re-sign that player to that contract. At least you'd have to see enough before making that decision. We've never seen somebody receive that richest contract in the history of the franchise and then completely disintegrate like Carson Wentz did this year. We've never seen that. We have now finally seen that. And now we will see how Philadelphia responds. And now we have seen that Philadelphia has responded by firing their coach. And and Howie Roseman was rightfully feted for signing Wentz early because you take a look at what's happening with Dak how the Cowboys have signed him late. They still haven't signed him to a long-term contract. So um, it's just a fascinating uh, development. And I I think Doug Peterson would use a different adjective than fascinating. (laughs) Well, the interesting thing now is whoever they hire, you have to decide Carson Wentz's future by about March 18th. You don't have all off season to study and to meet with them and all that stuff. You got to decide on the third day of the league year, because on that third day, the Philadelphia Eagles or whoever owns his contract uh, have to pay Carson Wentz $10 million in a roster bonus. So, I mean, it's, this is this off season for the Philadelphia Eagles, they got to get a massive amount of work done in the next two months. Uh, they, yes. they don't have, they don't have the benefit of time, but it's just. And then, it, right. And then there's the issue with, with the bears and what to do with Trubisky. And now, it appears Deshaun Watson's name has been thrown into this fire about uh, a quarterback situation. And that, that that makes Houston's hire significant, that the coach that they hire, the first job will be to uh, have that hire be the fireman and put out whatever is burning uh, within the temples of Deshaun Watson. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then all sorts of quarterback carousel maneuvers could be made and then the question is, what do the Jets do with Sam Darnold? What happens with Big Ben's future? I mean, this is a huge uh, next couple of months when it comes to a bunch of quarterbacks, certainly with Drew Brees getting set to join all of us with the Peacock uh, logo uh, on the screen. I mean, there's a lot up in the air. And remarkably, it seems that one guy who's not going to move is the 43-year-old who's in the division round against Drew Brees. <laughs> I mean, it really is amazing when you think about it but if you see the way i saw this in august if you see the way tom brady is throwing the football right now he looks like he's throwing 27 year old fastballs you know like he's 27 he's just he's throwing the ball really well and whatever anybody thinks of tb12 and and every single point about the health and well-being and how Brady practices it and pliability. He's playing great. He looks great. There's no question he's going to play next year. And if he does play next year, basically at the end of next year, he will still be an active NFL quarterback entering his age 45 season, which Rich, when he was 31 years old or maybe 32 years old, I met him one day and he basically said he wanted to play into his 40s. The next year, he said he wanted to play till he's forty-five, and everybody laughed at him. Yeah, he has a very, he's got a very good chance to do that. But well, I mean, I, as if as if his play doesn't show that the TB12 system works, Peter. 
Uh, yeah. we, we saw that side by side on the Saturday night broadcast that it's definitely yeah. better than the than the GB16 wellness system that George Blanda was employing when he was. <laughs> that was good. That was really, really good. <laughs> um, Rich, one other tentacle of the Patriots uh, item. What was your opinion and what was your thought when you saw the uh, Bill Belichick refusal or declining to get the Presidential Medal of Freedom? Well, um, I, I thought it was clearly the right maneuver. Um, and as you know, when people think that politics and sports mix, they, they, it's, it's like oil and water. But unfortunately, in this day and age, many, many other um, aspects of real life has been bleeding into the sports world. And as you know, I think the stick to sports world is dead, certainly from the number of sports athletes and all time greats that uh, place their uh, marker on a presidential candidate back in November and various uh, many, I would say a, a couple of leaps to mind, um, sports uh, outlets or sports content outlets uh, have taken up the mantra of uh, uh, another side of the aisle of politics. Um, so I think stick to sports is dead. But Belichick had no choice. I mean, he, he's he's a, a guy who, as we all know, um, uh, has ties to Navy. Uh, I mean, this was an insurrection uh, on, on the seat of democracy. It was uh, day in and day out, Peter, looks something quite like one branch of the government uh, declaring war on another. I mean, my goodness. So uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which uh, is is something that is to be, uh, um, you know, lauded and an achievement that is no question something that Belichick would ordinarily accept under these circumstances, it is unacceptable. Yeah, I thought it was about the only decision he could make. And I, I, I'm seeing a lot of people online praise Belichick uh, for turning down this and, and all this. Well, first of all, when I read the uh, the statement, uh, it sounded like it was not necessarily the decision he wanted to make. Really, well, it was you the know, passive. The decision was made. It was made right, but but you also have to understand as well. I, I I read that and I I saw that language too, and a lot of people are are seeing that, but. You know, quite honestly, um, there is a large section of this country who does not agree with the riot and insurrection putsch, which is the only way for it, that happened on our Capitol last week. They don't agree with that, but do also agree with conservative politics and politics that Trump, outside of everything that he has done over the last two months, did in fact make policy. Um, so, And they're Patriots fans, too. So I totally understand the rock and hard place in which Belichick was placed. <laughs> One thing that I think you you and I can safely say is Belichick did not campaign for this. It was, you know, just decided. Um, so for him to basically then say it was then decided for him to not accept it, I think is, uh, even though it's in the uh, public conversation, I, I think that he had no choice but to phrase it that way, quite frankly. I don't know. I mean, to me, I, I think if uh, I, I think understand I'd why like, you did, uh, you know. I guess I do, too. But I would like to know uh, whether he agrees with the decision. I don't know right now whether he agrees with the decision. He made the decision, but he certainly doesn't say whether he agreed with it. Uh, so that leaves me wanting more. But the one thing about Bill Belichick is, you know, that right now he's not going to be in front of a camera 
until at the very least, and I don't even think there will be league meetings this year, he's not going to be in front of the camera until at the earliest late March. So he, he, this will just die down. This will be over by then. And if he gets asked about it, all he has to say is, ah, well, I have, uh, I made my statement on that and let's move on. It reminds me exactly of what happened in Spygate, but, uh, I, you know, I, I was left wanting. Let's just say that in that in that thing. Um, I got two other things to 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 hit you with. One is, you know, you have now seen almost an entire season uh, of what's happened with the NFL trying to play through the COVID nineteen virus. What thoughts come to mind about how the NFL has done? how teams have done in the first 18 weeks of this process. It's a miracle. <laughs> it's not perfect, but the protocols that the NFL have placed in, uh, uh, in place um, are better than what we're seeing in the nation's capital. That's what I was thinking is, is one member of Congress after another seems to be testing positive. And I saw the video of members of Congress uh, derisively turning down masks when they were in shelter in place because insurrectionists had broken into the, the Capitol. I was thinking, is, is that the only workplace in America where masks are not required and a protocol is not required in order to actually come to work? I know what I'm doing with the NFL. I know I'm wearing a, 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 an N95 mask that the NFL just a couple of weeks ago decided with this new strain going on to mandate every single individual on the campus at NFL Network to wear. I have to wear a contact tracer when I go to work at the NFL network. So they know exactly where I am in relation to anyone. They, uh, I've had colleagues of mine who have unfortunately tested positive for coronavirus, get phone calls from the NFL and with contact tracing calls and conversations uh, last well uh, past a half an hour to figure out where they have been and who they were in contact with. And then they map the video up. And then they decide whether the strain that they have and match it up with another strain to see if it's an outbreak within the facility or not. And that's what's being done for NFL Network, part of the NFL world. And they're also maintaining that for 32 other teams. It's really remarkable, to be honest with you, Peter. Again, it is not perfect. I know that there are teams like Denver was wondering, why are we playing this game with a, 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 a practice squad wide receiver at quarterback and the Ravens get to be postponed six different times to Wednesday. Yeah. You know, how does that happen? Well, there are answers for it. I don't want to go too deep into it other than the fact that there was a rule made that, that if a position group in particular is wiped out, they're going to play a game, but there's an outbreak that they decide is put the entire facility and the other team at risk. They won't play it. It really is not, not perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better than what we're seeing in many other parts of this country. And it's, it's uh, amazing that we've gotten to this point. Uh, thank God that they have not found any sort of uh, player-to-player or player-to-coach in-game uh, transmission. They have no evidence of that. Uh, thank God. Um, and and I, I'm, I am constantly fretting because this is my job to pay attention to the NFL. Like what happens if somebody significant uh, – test positive for COVID Super Bowl week? Do they delay the game? Do they not? What do they do? Do they change the protocol that they've undertaken throughout the year to make sure that everybody is at least um, uh, full strength? Certainly if somebody's 
um, MVP quarterback is positive. I mean, what do they do? Again, the fact is, they, it, it really is a day-to-day um, scenario that's playing out. And thank God we're at this day with eight division teams seemingly healthy. You know, divisional weekend teams ready to go. This thought just occurred to me. Uh, I was going to ask you something else, but I, I changed my mind. Okay. I want to ask you a question. And look, you are an employee of the National Football League. So uh, this will be perhaps the biggest softball in Rich Eisen interview. <laughs> but you don't have to do but, that, Peter. You know, I always answer. I know, I know, I know, I know. But, okay, but I just this, to say that. This, this really occurred to me over the weekend watching the Cleveland Browns win this game. You know, kind of at every turn this year, Roger Goodell has uh, gotten criticism for, first, holding free agency on time. Better delay it. Mm -hmm. Second, holding the draft on time. Better delay it. Third, um, holding training camps on time. I'm not sure that anybody said delay it, but you've got to, you've got to, you know, have less contact, no games, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And then... Every time there was a little mini outbreak, massaging it, handling it somehow, so that the 256 games got played on time. And then the Cleveland Browns, their coach test positive. There was never any question that they they were going to play without their coach because that had been established this year. And I dare say that of all the stories in this year, the Cleveland Browns winning without their coach, never mind their franchise left guard, (laughs) <laughs> winning without their head coach uh, in Pittsburgh where they had lost 17 games in a row is just an absolutely, totally remarkable achievement. And I keep coming back to, you know, Roger Goodell with uh, no question with infinite resources uh, has made the right calls this year. And I've been critical of them uh, at times. You have a, a lot of people have, but I do think that it's fair in this incredible, bizarre year that the trains have run on time in the NFL, and you've got to give Goodell a lot of credit for it. Well, look, um, again, you, you, you say, you know, it's a softball, and, and, and to Roger Goodell's credit, I've had uh, conversations with him, as I've told you before, and I, I should repeat here, um, that prior to NFL Network's creation, he told me to go do what they hired me to do, that he was – uh, the COO of the NFL at the time uh, with Paul Tagley was a commissioner. Go do what you need to do and say what you need to say. And if anybody ever says you shouldn't say it, you call me. And um, he answered every question, a hardball question. Um, I threw at him without any uh, preconditions or conversation. What are you going to ask him during the lockout, which is, as you know, uh, prior to this season, one of the greatest threats to to football that we have seen was that lockout season. Um, this season, um, certainly coming uh, on the heels of the, the NFL 100 campaign where the, the, the league rightfully celebrated its history and, and recounted its history with some of the greatest programming that we've ever seen in the greatest um, uh, ceremonies that we've seen like the one at the Super Bowl last year with the aforementioned Bill Belichick holding up his rings to the booing crowd in Miami filled with Chiefs fans and Niners fans, and it was dynamite. <laughs> It was a dynamite yeah. season, and, and you could make the case that based on everything and the way that the game played out and how tight it was and what happened last year and the celebration, that it was the, NFL, it was the NFL's greatest season. You could make that case. 
that's now uh, no longer the case. This has been the NFL's greatest season. Period. End of story. The country needed it. We all we all wanted it. We all wondered if it should happen. Though many of us did. I know a lot of others who who think that uh, what they think of the pandemic and that this should have happened. Uh, most people thought, wondering certainly throughout many times this season, should it have happened? But uh, Dr. Alan Sills is somebody who deserves quite a bit of of credit. Uh, the people who clean the facilities deserve an immense amount of credit. The people who prepare the food, everybody banding together. I, it really does uh, amount to the greatest season the NFL's ever had, that we are where we are right now. And it's, uh, you know, I'm knocking on wood or just, you know, John Gruden, knock on wood if you're with me. Like we're, we're, we're three weekends away from its completion where all eight teams that are in it, we think deserve to be in it. None of them have, well, I mean, COVID did this to that team that, that would have made it without COVID. Like none of this is in question right now. None of it. Um, and we're all on the edge of our seat to see how it plays out. And um, nobody's died, thank God, from it. It's, it really is right now the greatest NFL season, Peter. Uh, I firmly believe it. Alan Stills told me when I interviewed him at his home in Nashville in August, and I questioned him about all the resources that the right. NFL was about to use in this season. He goes, you know, America should be rooting for us because yeah. we need some bit of normalcy in this crazy time in our lives. Right. And I have to right. say, I am not a pom-pom go NFL guy, but no. I couldn't agree with him more. We do need one thing in this country to go off the way it always has. And the most popular thing in this country, the most popular leisure pastime that we have is NFL viewing. You know, the ratings say it year after year after year. And it has gone off virtually almost exactly, give or take a Wednesday, a weird Wednesday afternoon game yeah. in Pittsburgh. But overall, it's just uh, – and again, so I wrote about the Browns the other day, and – I made this point that they spent $11,000 on limos for 24 coaches and players mm. to travel from Cleveland to Pittsburgh so that they there would be less time that anybody with any chance of being positive or having recently tested positive, that they would be around anybody. And you think about that and part of you thinks it's too much. It's just too much. But in reality, when you have the resources that the NFL has and you're trying to get these games played, you just do it and you worry about the cost later. You can't do that in many aspects of life, but you can do it in the NFL. No doubt. Hey, Rich Eisen, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so course, much for Peter. joining I always, me. And, uh, I always appreciate when you come on my show and I'd love to have you next week leading up to Championship Sunday and then. Super Bowl week. I mean, um, and the fact Rich, again, I, that we're, Rich, I'm, go I'm going. I, I, I are you I'm going? Not, that's the plan right now. Yep. Super yeah, Bowl weekend yeah. where we'll be doing our show from there. And, um, and so, um, like I said, I just love doing, you know, the show every day on Peacock and Great. being part of the NBC family. And, and, um, and I love uh, calling you an NBC colleague, Peter. So thanks for coming on my show and I'll come on yours anytime. Hey, thanks a million, Rich. You have a great week. Right back at you, Peter.
My thanks to Brandon Staley, Rich Eisen, terrific guest, very good conversation. Enjoyed both of them. I hope you enjoyed watching on Peacock or listening wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the four games this weekend. If they're anywhere near as good as the collection of six games we saw in wildcard weekend, it's going to be a good weekend in a lot of living rooms in America. Have a great week of watching, everyone, and we'll talk to you again next week. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.